Take the Word of God with me tonight and turn to the 73rd Psalm. Psalm 73. Now this is a familiar psalm and a psalm that if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard a lot of preaching on, but this is what the Holy Spirit of God has led us to tonight, and we trust that the Holy Spirit will open up the psalm to us and reveal to us what God has for us. Now I told you the title of the message is, Why Does Everything Happen to Me? And I, there's, there, I told you there's a funny story that kind of goes with that, and I'm going to tell on myself a little bit tonight. A couple days ago, I was talking to the pastor, and we got to talking about sermon titles, and of course, you know, the one that he came up with, the dunk by Jordan, and some of those came up, and I mentioned to him that I was going to preach out of the 73rd Psalm, and I haven't yet picked out a title. I was playing with the idea of uh, conquering disappointment, and he made the comment, oh, that's the, why is everything happening to me, Psalm? I said, you know what, I like that, I'm going to steal it. So, pastor's to blame for the title, or he gets the credit, rather, for the title here. But you got to ask yourself, have you ever had those times when you just felt like, why is everything happening to me? And again, I'll tell on myself a little bit here. There was a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, I uh, was preaching to the teenagers, and I just knew more than, more than most of the time, you know, sometimes you get up to preach, and most of the time when you get up to preach, you know you're preaching what God wants you to preach, but there are certain nights when you know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is just right there, and you know God is going to do something in that message. And I believe in that particular Wednesday night, I was excited about the message. I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt it's what God wanted me to preach. And as I began to preach that Wednesday night, I could feel the attack of Satan just as strong as it could be. All night long, there were constant distractions, things that were taking place in the service. And honestly, it was only the second time since we've been here in two years that I felt Satan's attack that strong uh, in the youth group. And so when, we, when the message was over, I walked away really disappointed, just really upset that things didn't go like I wanted them to go, and, and knowing that Satan was really on the attack. And I got up the next morning, I was still kind of down on myself, still a little discouraged, and I came on into work that day, and it just seemed like one thing after another. I got bad news after bad news, and it was just one thing after another. And finally, by the end of the day, I told my wife, you know, I'm just going home. I need to get away. I'm just, I was down. And I get home, and I'm on the cell phone, and I'm the kind of guy I can't sit still at my desk when I'm on the phone. I've got to walk around. I've got to wander around when I'm talking. How many of you are like that? You've got to wander around. Well, I, that's me, so I'm walking around the house talking to my friend, and I end up walking outside the back door, and we haven't been in our house too long, a few months, we're still learning about different things, and I've learned that the back door, though the door is locked, it will open on the inside and let you go out, but it won't let you come back in. And I'm already having a terrible day, I'm still discouraged from the previous night, and I'm on the phone, I walk outside, I don't think anything of it, it's only happened one other time. And my wife was there to let me back in. So I walk outside. I'm on the phone for another 10 minutes or so. And I get ready to go back in the house. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. And it's about to storm outside. And I go and I touch the knob. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Could this day get any worse? Well, my wife is at volleyball practice and still has probably another hour and a half of practice. So she can't bring me a key. I got the bright idea. I'm going to call my, my good friend, Mr. Aaron Overholtz, and maybe he'll leave football practice early and bring a key to my house. I mean, my car's locked up in the garage. I can't get in my garage. I don't have a key to my house. What, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? 
I'm going to sit out here for an hour and a half waiting on my wife in a storm. <laughs> and I was just discouraged. Now, fortunately, I uh, went out to the shed, and the previous owner had like a really flexible, really flimsy kitchen knife for some reason just on a shelf out there, and I was able to use that to pop the door open and get in my house. But I just thought to myself, man, why am I having such a hard time? Why is everything happening to me? And I was discouraged. And I think all of us have been there a time or two in our lives. And we see in Psalm 73, the psalmist here really is going through a hard time. He's looking at life and he's looking around at the world and he sees what's going on and he begins to get really discouraged because it seems like everything is happening to him. And I wonder tonight, how many of you have ever felt like no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you're trying to do right, nothing is going your way? We do the best we can, we live honestly, we do what's right, we serve the Lord, and nothing goes our way. In fact, maybe it seems as though the people who serve the Lord face many more heartaches and many more difficulties than the rest of the world. You know, you come to church and you, you look at the Wednesday night prayer list, and you just think of all the things that are going on in the church, all the the brothers and sisters in Christ, the church family that are struggling, going through difficult times and circumstances. And sometimes we get discouraged and we feel like, man, it's only those that are serving God that are going through a hard time. They face more difficulties. They face more heartaches than the rest of the world. And we see tonight that the psalmist is dealing with these same feelings. And we're going to look at how the psalmist struggled with this and what led to him conquering this disappointment. And so the message tonight is for the person that's here in the auditorium and maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you know somebody else that's discouraged. And we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit will help us tonight. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll look at this psalm together. Father, we love you tonight and I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would take control of this service. Lord, I pray that you would help me just to be a mouthpiece that the Holy Spirit of God can use to reach the one that's struggling tonight to help the one who's discouraged and disappointed to overcome that disappointment and understand, truly, we serve a great God. And Father, I pray tonight you would bless your word, and as we come to the invitation, there would not be a single person tonight that could be indifferent to thy word, but we would all respond according to how you've dealt with us in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin to look into this psalm, I've got two main points for you tonight. Now, don't get excited. There's a lot of sub-points. But we're going to look, first of all, at the situation that this psalmist found himself in, and then we're going to see the solution. And as we look at the situation, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1, and the Bible says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? 
Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. I want you to see tonight, as we look at the situation that the psalmist finds himself in, I want you to see, first of all, we're going to look at the beginning of the problem. Then we'll see the big problem and then the bigger problem. But look at verse number 1 and we'll find the beginning of the psalmist's problems. He says in verse number 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. So he starts out with verse number 1 and he makes a very plain statement. He makes a statement that God is good. He says, truly, this is a truth I know beyond the shadow of a doubt. This is not in question. The Bible says it. God is good to Israel and to those that are of a clean heart. So that is not in question. The psalmist knows his Bible. He knows his God. And he says, I know. He makes the statement, I know that God is good. But I want you to see where the problem is. The psalmist says in verse 1, I know God is good. But when you come to verse number 2, he says, but as for me. Now there's a big problem here and there's something that we need to be aware of. There's a strong warning that we need to take heed to. And that is this. It is always a dangerous place to place a higher emphasis on our current feelings than we do on truth. It is always dangerous to place a greater emphasis on your feelings than you do on the truth. And so the psalmist admits that I know God is good. That is the truth. He's good to those of a good heart. But then in verse 2 he says, But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. What he does in verse true, in verse 2, rather, he moves from what he knows to be true, and he takes a step in the direction of what he has perceived to be true based upon his feelings toward the situation. So no longer is he looking at just truth. Now he's trusting in his emotions, his feelings, more than he's trusting in the Word of God. He says, as for me, I know this is true, but as for me, this is what I think about the matter. As for me, this is how I feel about the situation. Friend, can I tell you tonight, we should never, never place a higher value on our emotions than we do on the truth. Now, before you get too carried away, I want you to understand tonight, I'm not preaching against emotions. I've heard people get up and preach that emotions are always bad. You shouldn't have emotions. I'm not preaching that tonight. In fact, God created us to have feelings. God gave us emotions, and I am thankful that we have them. I'm glad that I can be happy. I am thankful that I can rejoice, and I can laugh, and I can have fulfillment. In fact, if you look at your life, and you were to imagine that God had created us without feelings at all, and you lived 70 years on the earth, and you never one time were able to be happy and excited and enjoy things, man, that'd be a rather boring life. Thank God for our emotions. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have them. But with emotions, there's a warning. We need to remember that our emotions are not the be-all, end-all. Feelings are not the most important thing, and oftentimes our emotions cannot be trusted. More times than not, I have found in my life, my emotions are not to be trusted. For example, you get up on Sunday morning, the alarm goes off, and immediately, man, your body, your emotions say, I really don't want to get up right now. I really don't want to get out of bed. I'm going to have to get up early on a Sunday I'm going to have to go jump in the shower, put on my nice clothes, my shirt, my tie, my suit, and go to church. I could be home watching football right now. 
Now, I don't know that you've ever struggled with this, but I'll tell you, there are days that my alarm goes off on Sunday morning and my emotions say, uh-uh, don't get out of bed. Well, can I tell you, I think we've all been there, and if it's not going to church, it's going to work. But the Bible says, and we know this, the Bible tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but our emotions on Sunday morning, you've had a long weekend, it's been tiring, and you get up on Sunday mornings and your emotions say, man, I don't really feel like going to church. And if we listen and obey to our emotions in that instance, then we have disobeyed God by forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. In that instance, my emotion, my feelings are not to be trusted. One more example. I was saved as a six or seven year old boy, just a young boy. I remember that the preacher had preached on hell. I was scared to death in my bedroom. And I went and woke my parents up in the middle of the night, told them what was going on. They led me to Christ. And I, I loved the Lord. I, I tried to live for the Lord. When I became a teenager, it wasn't necessarily the cool thing anymore. And I got away from the Lord in my teenage years. And for pretty much until I graduated high school, I was away from the Lord. Now, I had been in church enough to know that what I was doing was wrong. I had gotten into some sin that I knew was not right. But while I was a teenager... I got to the place that I was numb. I could do those things. I didn't have any guilt. I didn't have just the overwhelming feeling of conviction, or so I thought. And I could continue to sin against God, and, and I, it didn't really bother me so much. I had done it so much, and I'd gotten kind of used to my sin. And I remember oftentimes in my late teens, I would sit up at night scared to death, and I would think to myself, this was my logic, and I would pray, Lord, am I saved? I began to doubt my salvation. By the way, sin will cause you to doubt your salvation. That's a tool that Satan uses to keep you from serving God. And because of my sin, I began to doubt my salvation. And I said, Lord, am I really saved? Because if I'm saved, then I would feel bad about what I'm doing. If I'm really saved, then I would have guilt over my sin. And I began to pray that God would give me a strong conviction for the purpose of convincing me that I am saved. So I was asking God, give me conviction, prove to me that I really am saved, make me feel bad about this. And it really never happened. Well, I went to camp at the Bill Rice Ranch, and I got really just bothered by it. And I went forward in an invitation, and I spoke to a counselor that was on permanent staff, and I told him the situation, and God gave this counselor exactly what I needed to hear. He asked me, he said, well... You're asking God for conviction. Do you really know what the word means? And I said, well, it means to feel bad about your sin, to be guilty. And he said, no. The word conviction simply means to convince. He said, it sounds to me like you're already convicted because you're already convinced that what you're doing is wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't be asking God for the conviction. And God gave him the wisdom enough to say what you're asking for. And he was just blunt with me. He said, it sounds to me like what you're asking for is for God to give you a pity party to make you feel bad to justify you continuing to do it. You want God to slap you on the wrist to convince you that you're feeling bad about it and you're justified in doing it. I said, you know what? You're exactly right. And I learned that night that I was already convicted. I knew it was wrong. I was convinced it was wrong. And really, I just wanted to feel bad about it because that would make me feel good if that makes sense. And I learned that night that my emotions could not be trusted. More important than me um, wanting a pity party would have been for me to go back and understand what the Bible says. 
I knew God's word. I knew that as a seven-year-old boy, I knew I was a sinner. I repented of my sins, asked Jesus Christ to save me. That was the end of the story. There was never a need for me to doubt my salvation, but my emotions and my feelings in that moment had caused me to doubt. So our emotions cannot be trusted. And here is the beginning of the problem that the psalmist had. He says, I know God is good, but as for me, man, I'm confused about this thing. I've got some messed up feelings about this. I'm disappointed. I'm discouraged. And the beginning of this is because he took what he knew to be true, he went away from it and placed a greater emphasis on what he thought or what his feelings were. Can I tell you tonight that I am so glad that I serve a God of truth. I don't serve a God, or rather, I am thankful that our relationship with Christ and our worship to God is based on truth, not based on emotion. That is a wonderful thing. What that means is that you and I never have to muster up feelings and emotions in order to worship God. God says we worship Him in spirit and in truth. I worship God in truth, not with my emotions. The problem that we see in the world today with the contemporary movement is they have shifted to the, placing the emphasis on their feelings and on their emotions and they try so hard with their music and with their worship and their praise teams to muster up some emotion and it's all about their feelings and they are as lost as they can be because we don't worship God with our feelings. We worship God in spirit and in truth and I'm so thankful for that. My emotions always cannot be trusted. And so we need to be careful. The psalmist went astray. The beginning of his issues are when he placed a greater emphasis on those feelings than he did on what he knew to be true about God. And I want you to see that what we read here in verse number 3, look at it, him doing this, placing the emphasis on his emotions, led in verse number 3 to him being envious at the foolish. He was actually jealous and envious at those that were ungodly. And he began to throw a pity party for himself. He became disappointed and perhaps even depressed over how he felt about this particular situation. And we will read that he also got to the point that he considered giving up on God. We'll see later on in the psalm, he said, Was it all in vain? Surely that I have been serving the Lord has just been a waste of time. He gets so depressed, so envious, all because he took his eyes off what really mattered. Took his eyes off the truth and placed them on himself. That's where the problem began. Notice with me secondly here, what's the big issue? What was the big predicament, the big situation that bothered him so very much? We see it in verse 3. He said, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's the big problem. The wicked prospered. In his mind, he looked at the world and the ungodly prospered in the world. And that was a problem to him. See, he thought that it's not fair. They prosper while I suffer. God is not being fair. Let me ask you a question tonight. Have you ever turned on the television and you saw uh, on the news somebody that you know is ungodly but they seem to have it made. They seem to have everything. You look at Hollywood and you see these people that on the outside they have everything the world could buy. They have everything, not a care in the world. And you think to yourself, man, God's not being fair. They're prospering and I'm suffering. You know, it's kind of difficult when you know somebody, you know they're not right with God. They have more than you have. They don't have the same 
uh, physical problems. They don't have the same problems in their family that maybe you or I would have. It's kind of hard to deal with that sometimes, isn't it? It's kind of hard to look at somebody we know is not trying as hard to serve God as we are, but they've got it better off than we do. And that's where the psalmist is tonight. He's looking around at the wicked and they're prospering, they're doing well. And here he is trying to do what's right, but it seems like they've got it made and he doesn't. You know, if we're not careful, we can get our eyes on this whole world and it can discourage us. I want you to see exactly what was going on here. The wicked prospered, but let's look specifically. Look at verse number 4. What did the psalmist observe? In verse 4 he said, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. As he looked at the wicked in the world, he said, You know, it seems like the wicked and the ungodly are getting away with their sin. Have you ever looked at somebody and you thought, Man, it just seems like they're getting away with it. It says there's no bands in their death. What that means is there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no pains in their death. He looked around at the wicked and it seemed like they were not struggling when it came time to die. It seemed like the wicked were not having an untimely death. Rather, they had full strength all the way to the end. And he thought within himself, man, they're just getting away with it. Their strength is firm and rather than suffering, rather than struggling, it seems like they're completely getting away with having lived a wicked lifestyle. This bothered him. Look at verse number 5. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. He goes on and he says, you know, I'm looking at the world, I'm looking at the ungodly. And, and I'm faithful, but I'm the one that's struggling financially. I'm faithful, I'm a man of prayer, but... They are much better off physically than I am. I've got problems in my family. I've got problems financially. I've got problems here, problems there. But as I look at the ungodly in verse 5, they're not in the same kind of trouble as other men. They're not plagued like other men. And he's looking at these wicked, ungodly people, and it almost seems like, man, they've got it made. It's bothering him. It's discouraging him. Maybe you know some people like this, just to try to bring it a little closer to home. Maybe you work for a man or a lady, and that particular employer that you have, you know, does not go to church. Maybe they're an atheist. Maybe they're of some false religion, and they give you a hard time on the job site because you try to do what's right. And you look at their life, and you look at where they live, and you look at what they have, and it seems like, man, they've got it made. They've got everything. They don't have the same trouble as most people. And you begin to think to yourself, God, why? Why do I suffer while somebody like that, who's an atheist, is prospering? See, this is what the psalmist is dealing with. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. He says here, hey, they're proud. The ungodly are proud. They're full of violence. You know, it's not... Hard to turn on the television, to turn the news on, and it won't take you very long at all to see that most of the people out there are filled with pride. It, it's not very hard to look and see the world and the ungodliness in the world is just filled with violence. Violence is everywhere. By the way, pride and violence are against God. And the psalmist says, hey, they're proud, they're filled with violence, but yet... They're healthy and they're in need of nothing. Verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. They're healthy. They have more than heart could wish. Man, they've got everything. 
Verse 8, they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither and the waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. He says here, man, these ungodly people, they speak wickedly. Their conversation, their words are not pleasing unto God. They're filthy. They speak loftily. They speak openly. Yet their cup runneth over. He says, you know, the wicked even go so far as to blaspheme, to actually mock God Himself. Look at verse 11. They say, how doth God know and is there knowledge in the Most High? He says, behold, these are the wicked that prosper in the world. They increase in riches. You know, you look at this old world, they don't have any regard for God. People that do not know Jesus Christ personally have no problem using God's name in vain. They have no problem slandering the Lord Jesus Christ and making His name a cuss word. And yet they blaspheme and they speak wickedly and they do so openly. In verse 9 it says, Their tongue walketh through the earth. They do it openly without any regard. And yet... In verse 12, it says, These are the ungodly that increase in riches. Now, the psalmist here, as we're going through this verse by verse, again, he's gone from the truth, God's good, to how he feels about it. He feels envious, discouraged, depressed, because he's looking at all these things. He's looking at all these ungodly people and all the ways they seem to be doing well and all the ways that they seem to be prospering. And the psalmist becomes confused. He's disappointed. And again, I ask the question, isn't it hard to see those who are godless and evil seem to get away with it? I mean, if you come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you're in your Bible every day, you're a prayer warrior, you're praying diligently, and tragedy strikes in your family. And then you just... For a moment, take your eyes off the Lord and you look around at maybe your neighbor and he's got everything that you could possibly desire. But he's not a godly person. And it gets kind of hard. You begin to question God and His faithfulness. You begin to question whether God is being fair with you. And it's especially hard when you're doing the best of your ability to do what's right. You see, this was the big problem. This is where the psalmist found himself. His big problem is that the ungodly, the wicked, seem to prosper. Notice with me, thirdly, the bigger issue. Now, it's a big issue to him that the wicked are suffering, but I want you to see there's even a greater issue that the psalmist is facing. And that issue is that the righteous suffer. The righteous suffer. You see, it's one thing to see the wicked go unpunished, but to see the righteous, those that are trying to do what's right, suffer is a whole other thing entirely. And we come to verse number 13. And in verse 13, he says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, washed my hands in innocency, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. You see, there was a big problem that the ungodly seemed to go unpunished, but there was a bigger problem in that the righteous seemed to suffer. You see, it seemed as though everything always happened to the godly. Everything was always going wrong to the Christians. Doesn't it seem from time to time 
like it's always God's people that are having the biggest problems. And you know, the Bible does tell us that they that shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We know that. There are things that God will allow in your life and in my life for the purpose of building our faith, for the purpose of making us a greater testimony to the lost. We understand that. Sometimes that doesn't make it any easier, though, does it? And he says here, it seems as though the righteous are the ones that have to deal with more sorrows. They have more unexpected problems. They have greater difficulties. They have more heartbreaking circumstances than the rest of the world. And he's looking at this that he perceives to be true based off his feelings toward it. And can I tell you what this did for the psalmist and what it will do for you? If you take your eyes off the truth and you begin to have this jealousy, this envy of the ungodly, you begin to think in your mind that God's not fair, God's people suffer, everyone else is doing well. Here's what happens. This psalmist had his faith in God shaken. His faith was shaken. In verse 13 and 14, we see the psalmist is beginning to doubt the character of God. He says in verse 13 and 14, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. And he begins to question himself. Has living a godly life just been a waste of time? I've known people that have served God faithfully for many years and you go knock on their door and they're no longer in church. Maybe they used to be preachers and they're out of church. And you ask them, what's the deal? How did you go from being a preacher of the gospel to not going to church at all? And they say, you know what? It wasn't worth it. They say, you know, it just, it wasn't fair. It was just a waste of time. Young man, you're wasting your life serving God. Now, can I tell you, that's probably one of the greatest lies Satan will ever tell. But it happens. And if we're not careful, you and I are not beyond discouragement. We're not beyond disappointment. And the psalmist has his faith in God shaken when he looks at the ungodly and sees their prosperity. And it seems as though he was seeing for himself more punishment than he was seeing reward. You know, we get the idea from time to time that if I serve God, He's going to reward me. If I serve God, I'm going to see fruit. If I serve God, I'm going to have it made. God doesn't promise that. We're promised reward, but we're not promised it right now. There are missionaries that spend their entire lives on the mission field not to see a single convert. Was it a waste of their life? No. Just because they didn't see the fruit and the reward then does not mean they don't have it in heaven. Yet we get the idea that if I serve God, then right now at that very moment, I'm going to be blessed. It's not always the case. Sometimes... God withholds our reward until we get to heaven. Sometimes the fruit for our labor is harvested by somebody else after we have planted the seed. And the psalmist says here, it just seems like I'm seeing more punishment than I'm seeing reward. Maybe you've been there before. As I read my Bible, a few names come to mind. Perhaps this is kind of how Job might have felt. You know, the Bible says Job was a perfect man, a man that feared God and eschewed evil, a man that had done everything right, tried his best to serve the Lord. But perhaps as you get on into the book of Job, Job might be feeling a little like he's seeing more punishment than he is rewards. He might have been tempted to get a little discouraged. He might have been tempted to get a little disappointed. How about the Apostle Paul? 
man, this guy we claim to be probably the greatest Christian outside of Jesus Christ, maybe to ever walk the world. He had surrendered to the gospel ministry, and we read about Paul. He was constantly beaten, thrown in jails, shipwrecked, often in perils. Maybe Paul felt from time to time like living for God was not worth it, man. He was just always seeing the punishments, never seeing the rewards. Now, how do these men overcome this? How did the psalmist get from being discouraged, getting defeated, to having victory? We're going to see that in a minute. But look with me here at verse number 15. He's discouraged. He thinks it's all in vain. He begins to doubt God. Look at verse 15 and 16. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. You see the psalmist, now he's doubting God. He's doubting the character of God. And if that wasn't enough, he says, I can't even tell anybody about it. I can't even talk about what's going on because if I tell somebody, it may cause them to struggle and be a stumbling block to them, and I don't want to cause anyone else's walk to fail. So now he's gotten even a little bit more into his pity party. He doubts God, he doubts God's faithfulness, and now I can't even talk to anybody about it. Of course, he can always talk to God. Well, you and I can always talk to God, but at this moment, he's got doubts about God. And he says, if I talk about it, I may cause someone else to stumble... And he says, because of this, I'm struggling, I'm going through this difficult circumstance, I can't even tell anybody about it. And verse 16 says, when I thought to know it, man, it was just too painful for me. I can't take anymore. It's too painful. Now, friend, I want you to look right here, because I want to ask you this question. I don't know your heart. I have no idea why the Holy Spirit led me to this psalm tonight. But I've got to ask, have you been there? Have you been in the same place that the psalmist is in here at this time in his life? Perhaps somebody in the room tonight is there right now. And you're going through a hard time. You've allowed the world to discourage you. You've allowed the world to disappoint you. And you're struggling with these same things. How do you get over it? How do you go from discouragement to victory? How do you go from getting off the truth and worrying with your emotions to getting back on the truth? Let me show you secondly tonight the solution and we'll be done. And we'll move through this quickly. Notice the solution in verse 17. The psalmist here says he's he's been struggling, he's been defeated, he's been envious. Verse 17 says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant as I was... uh, I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. 
We see at the end of the psalm here a drastic change from the beginning. The first part of this, man, he's beating himself up. He's having a pity party. He's depressed. He's discouraged. And now at the end, it's a 180 change. He says, it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord and I'll declare His works. How did he get there? What's the solution? How do we deal with the disappointment? How do we deal with the idea that sometimes we feel that God is unfair and blesses the ungodly and punishes the righteous? Number one, how do we deal with it? Keep being faithful to church. Keep being faithful to the house of God. He says in verse 17, "...until I went to the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein." You want to know what the secret was for Asaph here? It was the church. When he went back to the house of God, the church gave the psalmist perspective. You see, it was in the house of God, the place that is separated and set apart for the worship of God. It is the place where the Word of God is opened and the Bible is expounded upon. That's the place where the Holy Spirit of God can open and increase our understanding. And as the psalmist went back to the sanctuary, got himself in God's house, and God's Word was opened, then God gave him understanding, gave him perspective on this situation. All of a sudden, it was no longer about him and how he felt about it. It was about God and God's Word and the truth. And I want you to see that God's Word, the preaching of God's Word, can reveal so much to you and I. That's what God desires for us. That we come to church, the Word of God is preached, and the Holy Spirit opens our mind and our understanding. Can I tell you what getting in the house of God revealed to this psalmist? God showed the psalmist that the supposed prosperity of the wicked was all a facade. It was all a facade. Now, they might have had more materialistic gain. They might have had more money, more this and more that. But God showed him that it was all a facade because in a moment it can all be taken away. Look at verse 18. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. You see, it may seem to you and I from time to time that the ungodly and the wicked have it made, but if you look at your Bible and you look at what you know to be true, you come to church, the Word is preached, God opens your understanding, you find they face judgment. The ungodly face a judgment that is coming swiftly. Judgment that the righteous Christian will never see. You see, the ungodly who die without Christ will face the full wrath of God that believers will never know and never have to experience. Praise God, if you're saved tonight, you will never know what it's like to be in hell. You will never face the wrath of God. But the ungodly and the wicked, they may seem to have it made. They may seem to have all that the world has to offer, but judgment is coming. They're not getting away with it. They will not get away with their sin. And you know, it's not just the lost, but perhaps the backslidden, carnal Christian who has turned his back on God, guess what? He faces judgment as well. The carnal Christian who turns his back on God will stand face to face with Almighty God and will give an account for everything he's done, and there will be shame as he stands before God. Friend, I want to encourage you tonight... They're not getting away with it. 
And you can take a measure of comfort in the fact that the ungodly may seem to prosper, but judgment is coming. And God increases the understanding and gives perspective to those that are faithful to the house of God. Verse 17 says, Until I went to the sanctuary... That's where God gave him perspective. Notice, secondly, what's the solution? Not only should we keep being faithful to church, but secondly, keep your eyes on eternity. You see, this psalmist got in a pickle. He got in a bad way when he began to focus just on what was in front of him. As God's people, we need to take the big picture. We need to take the long look. We ought to have eternity set in our minds. And if you read the verses that we read... Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming swiftly. He says in verse 19, How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? Friend, listen, God's judgment is coming. And if you understand that I'm not worried about what's happening right now. Judgment may not be at this moment. But if your eyes are on eternity, you see the end, you see the big picture, you can be encouraged by that. Now, understand this. Oftentimes, when you're looking at eternity, you're looking at God's judgment. You're wondering, why is God not punishing them now? Understand, God will often delay judgment because He's long-suffering. God delights in delaying judgment so that He can give one more opportunity for repentance and faith. But in any moment, God can change their situation. Verse 19 says, "...as in a moment they are utterly consumed." God is often long-suffering with the ungodly. He's giving them opportunities to be saved, giving them opportunities to repent. But understand that at any moment, God can turn the tables. God can change their situation just like that. He is God. And so I want to tell you that tonight, we can be helped by the truth. Not by our feelings. We can be helped by the truth when we understand they're not getting away with their sin. But there's also a question in that. I can be helped and I can be encouraged to a certain degree by the idea that they're not getting away from it. But let me ask you a question. Should you and I rejoice in the fact that they're going to be judged? Absolutely not. If anything, understanding eternity, understanding God's Word, we're in church, keeping our eyes on eternity, knowing the end that the ungodly face, rather than rejoicing... Friend, we ought to be that much urgent to reach them. We ought to have that much more of an urgency to win them if we understand the horror and the terror and the reality of hell and how wicked it is, how horrible it is, and to understand that people you know may be there. We don't glory in their judgment. It may make us feel a little better to know that they're not getting away with it, but friend, we ought never glory and delight in their judgment If anything, when we look at eternity, we ought to be that much more encouraged to reach them. When you look at what awaits them in eternity, catch this, should we as Christians fail to be a witness? It's horror. The bottomless pit. Torments for all of eternity. Separation from Almighty God. Friend, listen, we need to do our part to reach them. We may not like the idea that they may seem to prosper more than us, but friend, that gives us motivation. We have Roundup Sunday coming in a few weeks. 
when you look at this world and you see the state of it, you see how many are in the world that are wicked and ungodly and living the way of the world, it ought to give us that much more of an urgency. Get them to church. Get them under the sound of the preaching of the Word of God. Get the gospel to them and win them to Christ. That's why they're still here. That's why they haven't been judged and punished yet because God's giving opportunity for them to be saved. And how are they going to get saved? You and I are going to tell them. How shall they hear without a preacher? Friend, listen, we need to be that preacher. We need to go out to this wicked and ungodly world and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to keep our eyes on eternity. Notice real quickly in verse 21, how did the psalmist react when he got his eyes off himself and got his eyes on eternity? When he stopped looking at his present situation and he saw the big picture, notice his reaction. Verse 21, My heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. Can I tell you how this psalmist reacted when he finally saw the big picture? God revealed to him the truth. He had been so envious at the ungodly. He had been so upset with their prosperity, with their earthly blessings, with their materialistic gain. And now he sees the big picture. He's pricked at his heart. Why? Why is he so grieved? Why is he so bothered when he sees the truth of eternity? Here's why. He realizes he has more than they can imagine. You see, he has Almighty God. Can I tell you tonight, if you're a believer, you have an eternal home in heaven. You have the Holy Spirit to guide you every decision and every day of your life. You have the very presence of God. And guess what? The wicked have none of those things. All the money in the world can never give a man the peace and joy of knowing Christ. You see, the psalmist realized the truth. He had it all. They had nothing. They may have money, wealth, popularity, but when you look at eternity, he's the one that had it all. He had Christ, and they had nothing. Notice with me thirdly and lastly tonight. How do we overcome it? How do we have the solution? How do we get the victory when we're discouraged? You keep being faithful to church. You keep your eyes on eternity. And lastly, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 28, it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord and I'll declare His works. Keep your eyes on Christ. By the way, the only way for you and I to be successful in the Christian life is to keep our eyes on Jesus. There's no other way to be successful than to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. There's a principle here. What you give the most attention to will define you. Understand, what you give the most attention to will define you. If you place the greatest emphasis on Hollywood, then Hollywood will define you. If you place the greatest emphasis on sports... You will be defined by sports. But you know, as a Christian, if you place the greatest emphasis on Jesus Christ, that is your sole desire, and you place the greatest emphasis in your life on Christ and on His Word, then you have the greatest blessing of all. A life that is defined by the Word of God. What a testimony. What a testimony to a lost and dying world. 
You see, as we look at Psalm 73 tonight, the psalmist's problem began when he took his eyes off Jesus and he put them on this world. He took his eyes off the Word of God and the truth and he placed his eyes and his emphasis on himself and how he felt. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. Hebrews 12.1 says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin that does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Friend, keep your eyes on the Lord. Don't worry about the wicked. God will take care of that. He is the judge, not us. He'll balance the scales. Hebrews 9.27 and as it is appointed unto men, wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Friend, we're all going to stand before judgment. The ungodly will get theirs at that time. We don't need to be concerned with it. One more verse, Matthew twenty-five forty-six, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Friend, listen, tonight, ours is not to look at the world and judge what others deserve. That's not our place. Ours is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in His sovereignty. It may not make sense to us. It may not seem fair, but He's God. He's got it under control. Let's worry about what we know to be true. Let's keep our emphasis on the truth, on the Word of God, and just trust that He knows what's best. Let's bow for a word of prayer tonight.